And we'll continue that time of worship now with a reading from Acts chapter 24 and 25. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoyed much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews and throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, well, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let those men themselves say what wrongdoings they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that, he be summoned, that they summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. 
Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had confirmed with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you noticed in the middle of that text, which Luke seems to be caring about the details, five days, three days, eight days, eight to ten days, and then right in the middle of that, there's a, a, a brief explanation of a period of time that really caught me off guard. Sometimes you can lose sight of time when you're reading the Bible. And in the middle of that chapter, Luke writes, two and a half years elapsed. Or actually, just two years. Two years elapsed. Two years? <laughs> I want you to think about that. Two years. Um, I can imagine the Apostle Paul near his life. Wouldn't he be concerned about such a waste of time in prison? I've got places to go. I've got places to preach. I've got churches that need me to be a part of them. I can't waste my time in prison. And yet when you stop and you look at kind of the overall perspective of how time and especially life of a, of a, of a godly leader, it's very interesting how often God doesn't seem to be as interested in time as we are. This is the beginning of the church. Jesus is crucified in roughly 29 AD. The church starts 50 days later. And then Paul is converted in the year roughly 33. But then notice how it progresses. He doesn't start his first missionary journey until the year 47. Years and years and years of preparation. Paul says he went to Arabia. Paul says he goes back to Tarsus. There's years of work that is never really described in the Bible. Jesus is born 30 years until he starts his public ministry. I don't know about you, but when I, when I hear about that, it just seems like time could have been used a little bit better, don't you think? Like, really, do you need that much time to prepare? That much time? After his journeys, and this is what I find even more interesting, from the time of Paul's first missionary journey until the time when Paul is arrested, 
Um, and on his last visit to Jerusalem is a time of, of about roughly 10 years. And then he's going to spend the next 10 years in jail. 10 years in prison. Just doesn't seem like a good place for such an effective preacher of the gospel. And after he is released, when he meets Caesar in roughly the year 63, he gets a couple of years off. It looks like he may have actually traveled to Spain. And then back when he returns to Rome, he dies. His years of ministry is roughly about 30 years, in which he spends about 14 preparing and 10 in prison. Do the math. Does God know what he's doing? What's the answer? Yes. It just causes me to stop and say it seems like God uses the most interesting and complicated and adversarial relationships to do some of his most amazing work. I don't know if you've ever spent time looking back. You know, if I had just spent the last two years more aware of what God has done. If I had just spent my college years, if I had just spent those first few years when we were married, if I had just, I feel like I've wasted so much time and so much kingdom, valuable effort could have been, could have been spent and made a difference. And sometimes it's just good to stop and to realize that God is sovereign over all of this. It makes you just realize that that even in prison, some amazing things can happen. On the 5th of April, 1943, a German pastor was arrested for the things that he said, for him speaking out against um, the Nazi regime, against a lot of their uh, practices. He'd been doing it for a long time, and I guess enough was enough, and he was arrested and spent the next few years in prison. And it's during that time in prison he wrote some pretty amazing work. Poems, letters to his family, letters that now serve as an incredible example of what it means to be a Christian facing enemies. Interestingly enough, in his letters from prison, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives this challenge to Christians. You know, it's not just in our deep meditation and reflection on God that we find ourselves being used by him, but in the everyday ups and downs of life. Prison does that to you. It somehow reminds you that yes, there are enemies, and yes, there are difficulties, but God is still God, and yes, there's an important role that we need to play, but God is in no way stopped God is in no way redirected. God is in no way undone by the circumstances that happen to you and I, even by the best of our enemies, the greatest of our adversaries. On the 9th of April, roughly two years later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is executed. He had been taken just weeks previous to a concentration camp, and they killed him as they knew that the Allies were coming. Are you ready for this? Two weeks before that camp where he was held was liberated by Allies' forces. I've often thought of that. Two weeks. What a waste of a life. And yet God in his sovereign power had Dietrich's life and his ministry 
both inside and out of, outside of prison, under his direct control. On the 12th of April, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested. Civil disobedience. And he spends some time in a Birmingham jail. While in prison, he reads an article that had been written by a number of pastors that were deeply concerned about just how outspoken Martin Luther King Jr. and a number of other pastors were. They considered that kind of civil disobedience unrest to be just not very biblical. And Martin Luther King decided, and he even, even confessed to this, I usually don't give responses to all of my critics. But I feel like I need to speak out in this time. And from his letter in a Birmingham jail, he goes on to describe, much like Augustine did hundreds of years earlier, that unjust laws are not real laws. And there comes a time and when we, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to stand up and speak, even though it's difficult, even though it could land us up in jail. We must stand up and speak. And our enemies just want us to be silent. And then April 4th, 1968, his life is ended. I think about people like this, and it's just not how I would work it out. I, I would never, the life of Moses, Moses lives 40 years in Egypt just as an Egyptian. He then spends, I feel like he's wasting, but spends the next 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. And then God comes to him, you know, at those peak years when you're 80 and uses him. And then he dies on a mountainside, never making it into the promised land. I don't know about you, but I just, I would do it different, wouldn't you? I would deal with adversities and difficult different than God does. And I think that's why it's good for us to look at this time in the Apostle Paul's life and what I want to do is I want to look at chapters 24 and the bit of 25, and I want to say, what can we learn from the Apostle Paul that the Apostle Paul has learned from the Bible and the teachings of particularly Jesus Christ, his Savior, so that he lives his life in front of his enemies, before his adversaries, under attack, and yet he seems to be completely, completely of sound mind and judgment. I think one of the greatest concerns that we should have as followers of Jesus Christ is that somehow we might become like our adversaries, like our enemies. That we would somehow use the same tactics. That we would somehow adopt and begin to use the same um, emotional temptations and flare-ups and anger that we would return verbal jab for verbal jab, that we would somehow feel justified by the way that we act. Because after all, they started it. After all, we're right. Actually, I think the Apostle Paul would say, after all, we need to remember who we are. We need to remember what's at stake. We need to remember who we're ultimately trusting with 10 years in prison, 14 years in training, or 10 years on the mission field. It's all his. It's all his.
Maybe that can give you a perspective on what you feel is like lost years of disobedience. Or maybe it'll help you prepare for the next years that you have in which I, I expect for there to be an increased measure of um, a vocal opposition to the message that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ and the implications of living that out in a world that never really is interested in the things of God. But we are, we are interested in the things of God. We are interested in his way. We want to see his kingdom come. And, and therefore, you and I get to look into the life of the Apostle Paul and see this man in the midst of great adversity respond like Jesus. A couple of things I want to just take from this text that describe us an attitude of a man under great pressure. How does Paul respond to those who are fighting against him? First of all, you see, number one, he doesn't seem to be resentful about it. I don't know about you, but 10 years in prison would make me kind of resentful, especially when I feel like I'm innocent and I don't deserve to be here. And they're lying and they're not telling the truth. I had a hard enough time going to my room when I got in trouble from my dad when it was my sister's fault for half an hour. The Apostle Paul doesn't seem resentful at all. Listen to these words, Acts chapter 24, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, knowing that for many years, speaking, about, speaking to Felix, knowing that for many years that you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Like, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad for the opportunity to actually be here. I'm not complaining. I'm not like sitting in the corner of my room, kicking, crying, screaming. I see how God has orchestrated all of this so that I can now stand before you and I can now boldly proclaim why I'm here, because I'd love to clear this up. And the Apostle Paul saw the attack of his enemies under God's sovereign direction and realized, wow, God's going to use this for his purposes. And he saw himself used as a vessel so there was no buildup of resentment that came up in him. The second thing that we see, the Apostle Paul is very aware that while he is in prison, that others are watching. He's aware of his audience. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 24. The Apostle Paul says, So I always take great pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So as the Apostle Paul is being attacked, and as the Apostle Paul has to make his defense, and as the Apostle Paul has to travel, and as the Apostle Paul has to sit and wait, he is really aware everyone's watching. Everyone's watching. And the Apostle Paul says, and I want my life to be lived in such a way that I don't have regret. That I don't have, not that he wouldn't be willing to do it, but that I don't have to make apology. Obviously, the Apostle Paul is very aware of what happens when you're put in trying times. Most of us, when we are put in trying times, feel like we can justify our actions. And the Apostle Paul isn't trying to have his way. He's not trying to even gain his freedom. The Apostle Paul realizes people are watching. People are seeing me. Wow, I, 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 found, I found out the other day, I'm not the only one with a Facebook account. There are others, and they can see mine. That when I drive in town, other people like recognize my car and they see me. 
that when I stand up and speak or even just have a conversation between one and one, I, I really, there are people that are watching and the Apostle Paul says, like I strive to make sure that my conscience is always clear. By the way, he doesn't think that's going to be his ultimate judge. But the Apostle Paul says, my conscience is clear. I know that there are other Christians that are watching how I respond to my enemies. And they probably have heard that Jesus actually said, pray for those who persecute you. These other Christians have probably already heard that this is how we actually deal with our enemies. We pray for them. We love our enemies. So these other Christian people, they're watching me, and so I'm going to have to be very intentional, not just careful, like, oh, I really wish I could attack them, but I can't. Not that kind of care. It's, it's the intentional aspect of this. And the Apostle Paul knows that there are other believers that are watching him under duress. And more than that, the Apostle Paul knows that God is watching. That God knows how I respond to a wrong accusation. That God knows how, when push comes to shove, I'm not only tempted to do the easy thing, but he also watches when I don't. The Apostle Paul believes that God will take care of this. You and I would probably come along, said the Apostle Paul, and say, I just don't think you understand how serious these things are. I don't think you get how serious these accusations are. I don't think you fully understand or appreciate the circumstances that you're in. And I genuinely believe that for those of us that want to do that, for people who are in difficult circumstances, people like Paul usually want to respond back by saying, no, I don't think you understand how big God is. I don't think you understand that he promised to send the Holy Spirit. I don't think you understand how trustworthy are the teachings of Jesus Christ that we forgive those who trespass against us. We pray for those who are not only our friends, but who are our enemies. The Apostle Paul is aware of his audience and he lives though they are, as though they are watching all the time. The next thing the Apostle Paul does in terms of how to deal with those that are fighting against him, Paul searches and tries all, at all opportunities to clarify the issue or to clarify the truth. This is the accusation against Paul. Paul's a troublemaker. Paul is trying to upset Roman peace in Jerusalem and particularly around the temple. The Apostle Paul doesn't really care about God or about, about the Jewish faith. And the Apostle Paul stands up consistently and says, no, nope, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. The Apostle Paul doesn't just sit back and passively shut down. He doesn't become passive aggressive. He doesn't just become this, well, I, you know, you're just not listening to me and so I'm not going to talk back. No, he doesn't take his ball and go home. He doesn't respond verbal jab for verbal jab, but the Apostle Paul intentionally clarifies the truth. I love how he draws all this in. He does this over and over and over again because this is he's been a number of, of, of small trials and he keeps going to the point. It's like the Apostle Paul is constantly saying, listen, I have no problem for being guilty of what I'm guilty of. I have no problem dealing exactly with the problems that you feel like I'm creating and if I'm guilty, you can do to me whatever you want. But I will not 
I will not allow these false accusations to stand. In Acts chapter 24, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The Jewish establishment always wanted to make it about Paul being not, not for the Old Testament, not for the temple. And Paul kept, no, no, no. Remember, I keep telling you, I'm for the temple. I'm for the temple. Now, here's the part that's interesting. What do you do in those times when the people that you're trying to clarify the truth, and it's like they're not listening? No, I explained this to you. No, I told you why. No, I told you. He keeps striving back to this. He keeps clarifying the truth. I am actually a follower of God, and I do it with a good conscience. I am somebody that understands and values and appreciates the Old Testament. They won't listen, and the Apostle Paul won't stop clarifying. And I just couldn't help but think how many times when I'm tempted to feel like they're not listening for me to pack up and go home, for me to become resentful and angry, for me to wash my hands and walk away. The Apostle Paul seems to give an amazing amount of determination and trust in clarifying why he is there, in clarifying what he believes, and willing to, willing to stand on that and take whatever heat might come. But he doesn't just allow the false accusations to hang over his head. The last thing the Apostle Paul does is he makes a hard stand. He's not afraid to stand up and say, listen, like, we're not going to do this anymore. This is one of those things that I find very interesting. I know it's complicated because we have all this turn the other cheek and go the second mile, and all of those are true. And that is why wisdom and discernment is so important for us as believers to not only have, but to pray to God for. God, give us the ability to discern these circumstances. God, give me the ability to discern my situation. God, give me the ability to know exactly how to deal with my adversaries in these moments. And it doesn't seem to be, even looking at the Bible, that there's always just one way to do it. But I like how the Apostle Paul here at the end of chapter 25 just kind of draws a line. Okay, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm done. Nobody is listening. And the Apostle Paul, maybe in part, because Jesus Christ has appeared to him and said, you will go to Rome. But the Apostle Paul knows the game that's playing. Two years of waiting. And now the governor is asking, so do you want to go back to Jerusalem? And that whole thing is just for the ambush. And Paul knows that. And Paul finally just makes that bold claim, I appeal to Caesar. He makes a stand. I shouldn't be here. It's unjust that I am here and I am going to stand up and I'm going to do, by the way, not what's right for him. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He still considers his life as part of something that God is using for something greater. He says in verse 11 of chapter 25, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. I'm not here trying to do everything I can to live one more day or one more week or one more year or see my grandkids grow up. The Apostle Paul is not trying to save his skin. But the Apostle Paul makes a stand. He says this, but if there is nothing to these charges against me in which I've now been on trial and trial and now in governors and then new governors, 
If there's nothing to these charges, notice how many times in, this, in, the, in, in Luke's account, and they couldn't prove it, and there was no proof about it, and they couldn't prove it. If there's nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. That's insightful. And again, we read that as though the Apostle Paul is finally sticking up for himself. Good job, Paul. And I think Paul would say, no, I'm just, I'm willing to use everything I can so that I may be faithful to God in all of my circumstances. And we're going to see how his life and his ministry is going to continue. And his enemies are not going to give up. Just like Bonhoeffer's enemies did not give up. Just like Martin Luther King Jr.'s enemies did not stop. Just like our enemies will not stop. And so the real question becomes this morning, how do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, living in 2019 in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and just, you know, that enjoyable time of year, right when an election is coming up, you know? The kind of year we all look forward to so much. How do we deal with enemies, adversaries, opponents? How do you and I respond when we have, have a sense, and I don't, think, I don't think we're crazy, have a sense that there is um, a movement that is... Um, undoing what the Bible teaches and about how God describes everything from marriage to sexuality um, to our, our gender. I mean, all of that stuff. How do we respond? And the Apostle Paul, and more than that, the teachings of Jesus Christ, gives us a clear picture. This is how you respond. I think we have not spent enough time thinking through and working through what it actually means to have an enemy and to deal with that enemy like a follower of Jesus Christ. We know how to tweet about it. We know how to post about it on Facebook. We really know how to talk about it amongst ourselves in our own secluded groups, right? Where me and like five of my friends who totally agree with me I'll sit down and spend an entire time, cup of coffee, pot of coffee, complaining about all of the enemies and all of the difficulties and all of the moving shifts and cultural trends. Just to then retweet and repost about our great wisdom that we've discussed in this secluded think tank. And, and by the way, I think that happens all over the place. It's, it's not just, that's just not just my group, that's different groups. And what if God uses, because it seems like he does, whether it's the 1960s, the 1940s, whether it's the Apostle Paul in the first century, God uses adversaries and opponents and enemies and difficulties and switching cultural trends to reveal himself, to make himself known, to strengthen a group of believers around what matters most, which is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which, hear me, has ramifications and has implications on culture and social constructs, but at its very center and at its very core is the unifying force of the church. And Jesus Christ even says to his own disciples as he sends them out, 
And this is where I want us to look this morning. What is the Apostle Paul drawing attention to? I think it's teachings like this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 and hear what Jesus says to his disciples as he sends them out into a difficult place where they're going to have to deal face-to-face with enemies and people who don't think like them and people who don't agree with them and people who don't want to hear from them anymore, people who want to make them silent, people, that they want, people who want to intimidate them. And Jesus raises up these 12 disciples and he teaches them and teaches them and teaches them and then he sends them out with this instruction. Look at verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So funny, we talk about God who loves to go out and find the one lost sheep. Very seldom do I hear, you know what God's like? He loves to send sheep out into where wolves live. No, he sends them out. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, which we don't talk a lot about in the church. We know how to be angry. Um, we, we know how to be right. That's the, one of our favorite things to be. It's, Jesus talks like this. You need to be wise as serpents. There's a craftiness. Luke's gospel does this quite a bit where he says, you seem to be able to discern all of these things. You seem to be able to know how to just get through life and how to do things right. And yet when it comes to, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to spiritual discernment, you just stop thinking. Like you stop acting. You know how to discern the times and you know how to, to farm really, really well and you know how to discern what the weather's going to be like. You know, all of these things that don't really matter. And yet when it comes to like discerning that the, the Son of Man is in front of you, to discern teachings, all of a sudden you just stop thinking. You stop discerning. You stop doing the hard work of connecting the dangers of thoughts together because just everything seems like it's fine. And Jesus says, no, I need you to be as wise as serpents. And here's the com- complex part. How do you become wise as a serpent and not lose your innocence? How do you somehow act as shrewd as your enemy with none of the evil malice or intent? That's tough. He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts. They will flog you in their synagogue. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. You're not dragged there accidentally. The adversary's not there accidentally. Your opponents and your enemies are not there accidentally. You will testify before them when they deliver you over. Don't be anxious about how you're going to speak or what you're going to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus gives them such interesting, hey, listen, if it gets really complicated, run. Go to the next town. 
hey, I just don't want you to be surprised by any of this. It seems like what Jesus is telling them, and he did this a lot in his ministry, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. The Apostle Paul is able to look at his circumstances and to look at those who are in front of him, and he can discern sheep, sheep, wolf, sheep, sheep, wolf, 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 wolf. He knows. I'm sending you out as sheep before wolves. See, one of my greatest concerns right now about opponents and about the church is that we're not being very discerning in terms of who the real enemy actually is. I, th- I think this is what happens with years and years and years of not really having like a, like a clearly defined enemy is then you and I have a lot of extra time on our hands in which we can just take shots at each other. And and by the way, I'm not saying that some of our conversations that we have within the Christian community aren't important and we need to have them. I'm not trying to shy away from anything. No, I think it is good for us to have very um, clarifying and refining comments about theology, whether that's big picture theology or even fine print theology. I think those times are important, but tell me at the end of the day that you're able to discern sheep, sheep, wolf, sheep, wolf. Can you discern the difference? And I really think that as the times get more complicated... Are you able to discern that the arguments that you have or the frustrations that you feel are rightly discerned between sheep and wolves? It's that kind of discernment that will then give us the right picture that the world can begin to see, not of a church that is devoted to Jesus Christ, full of infighting and full of disunity. Hear me, a church that's willing to have tough conversation and even recognizes the limits in our understanding of of theology or even its social implications, but in the end, they recognize who's a brother and who's the enemy. I want to ask you, can you discern? For some people, everyone's the enemy. Everyone's the enemy. They, They go to college and they have this profound insight And they now see the world in a way that I've never seen it before. And now I am just, everyone's the enemy. And everybody's the problem. It's been my experience. And then over time, interestingly enough, I meet a lot of other people and they have a hard time finding the enemy. Now, you know, I used to be like that. I used to, everything was a big deal. And now it's just like, whatever. Realize it takes no discernment to label everybody who thinks different than you as, as, as wolf. And it takes no discernment to, to kind of look at things which, which might actually stir up some concern or some problem with you and then just say, but I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. You know, it's easier. Let's just think big picture. Now, our mission The discerning Holy Spirit that lives within us gives us the ability to discern wolf, sheep, and then to respond accordingly. Complicated, difficult, back and forth conversations, sheep to sheep, brother to brother, sister to brother. But we don't 
hurt one another. We don't attack one another. We don't destroy one another. We fight for the unity of the faith so that you and I might demonstrate to a world that might be enemy explicit or might just be enemy in thought, and we come to them as one people, doing our best to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to them and to win them by proclamation of the gospel, not proclamation of social transformation, but proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to find peace with God. Can you discern? Are you able to? And by the way, I'm not going to sit here and give it. And here's, by the way, the secret to discernment. Now, I kind of wish I could, but there's just not enough time for that. It takes time. It takes maturity. It takes wise counsel. I would strongly encourage, though, that as, as issues become more complicated and more, um, more, more hot topic centered, and just, I don't know if I want to touch that one. Is he going to speak about that? I don't even want to touch that one anymore. Then it becomes increasingly important for us to be able to have difficult conversations with one another, that we can walk through the fine print of the gospel itself and its implications upon society in such a way that we are prepared to have those conversations. And the good news is not all of us have to fight everybody. That's why I love the fact that there are just certain men and women that are gifted with abilities and uh, an ability to explain, an ability to confront, an ability to persuade. But I love how the Apostle Paul can recognize the difference. He'll have tough conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, he'll have tough ones. But he never seeks to destroy no, when they're family, you build up. So as things move, and it, it, by the way, it's, it's not just political. Um, it seems to find its expression there so much of today, but it's so much more than that. But I think it is absolutely um, critical for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to be aware of the Bible, to be aware of what the Bible teaches to be aware of um, the implications of the teachings that we have and how they work itself out in our lives. It's important that we do that, and especially as our enemy pushes, takes, steals, accuses, that we hold one another accountable in terms of even how we respond. And that we always do so believing that should we be in difficult situations, the Holy Spirit will provide the words to say. And you know what it's like when you're in a situation and all of a sudden your face just feels red and you just feel like anybody else just kind of their passions get away from them? Anybody else? It's, I don't trust myself in many of those conversations. And I love a text like that Matthew 10 text where it says, well, you weren't supposed to trust yourself. Trust the Spirit. The one other thing about discerning both enemy and, 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 and friend in these situations is that um, unlike the Apostle Paul, I can't really see anything that he kind of gets way off on. But the one thing that I have loved, just in a real kind of a personal way that I've learned this, is that when I've made the mistake with a, a sheep or a wolf, I love the ability to just go to them and say, hey, by the way, I was out of line there. Like my passion got ahead of me. I'm not trying to use that as an excuse 
but I, I shouldn't have acted like that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have responded like that. Like, that's not the way Jesus would have, and I'm ashamed that I actually did, and I just need to apologize to you for that. See, I think that's one of the major dangers with sitting behind a screen on a computer and taking shots at enemy or friends is that you never have to deal with the white in their own eyes. You never have to deal with the pain that you cause them. And they never have to deal with the pain that they cause you. Again, I'm not trying to say have nothing to do with social media. But I'm saying I would strongly challenge that as brothers and sisters of Christ, that we actually have real context in which we have real Bible, gospel implication conversations with people, not just from our office or not just from our phones, but eye to eye, face to face, um, tear to tear. I believe the gospel is worth that. The last thing the Apostle Paul does is he understands, since he knows that the audience that he sees, or the audience that sees him, is watching him, the other thing that the Apostle Paul does is he is able to trust the only true judge. I don't think he had this text to work from, but I think the Apostle Paul would say, hey, Peter, that's some good stuff. First Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about to this group of Christians who are finding themselves under attack. And Peter is giving them this strong encouragement to remain true, to remain faithful, to remain innocent as doves. And Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, strongly recommend that maybe you cut this out and put this by your computer or on your mirror before you start your day to just remind you of what our attitude should be before friends and enemies. Peter says this, servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one who endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure but if when you are good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that when you might follow in his steps, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I read a book a number of years ago that was really impacting on my life. It was a story of a World War II veteran from the United States of America who actually found himself becoming more and more like the enemy as he was battling in the South Pacific. And as I read this book, I just couldn't help but think how sad it is that that can happen to all of us. And I think my greatest concern for us as believers right now is not that somehow we might get flooded and everything might and everything's gonna change and wow, we're gonna lose all our rights and that's not my greatest concern. Like without a shadow of a doubt, my greatest concern is that somehow we will just become like those who oppose us and therefore lose all credibility with our message. 
Do you realize, like, as times shift and as even Christianity becomes unpopular or our views about marriage or about um, sexual orientation or gender identification, whatever these might be, you do realize, like, as society moves in a direction that is not in connection with the Bible, that as you and I stand, when we stand as Peter describes... All of a sudden, the light looks brighter and the saltiness has a better sting. It's got more flavor to it. So it's not about you and I being right. It's about you and I being like Jesus in the midst of being right. Can you imagine what it would be like if in this next election cycle... I mean, we can't take over the whole world, but do you realize like, what it would be like if at Sunnybrook... like? people who had like different ultimate conclusions because we knew that what we had at the very core was the most important thing and we agree on these issues, if we could be one together? Do you realize the kind of impact that can make in our community? The kind of impact it can make in our own homes? The Bible actually teaches that when we speak, we must speak the truth in love. And I just want to remind you, the world needs to hear the truth. They really do. And we have it in Jesus Christ and in the gospel of him. We lose everything if we don't say it in love. And so right now, before we even enter into a time of communion, I just want you to think, who are those who are opposing you? Who are those that you would kind of label as an enemy or as an adversary? Number one, are you discerning them properly? Are you somehow discerning them wrongly maybe? And that's not the enemy. That's just a brother or sister in Christ that you don't agree with. How do I reconcile that? And for those who are our enemies... Do we have the attitude and the example that Jesus Christ has? Loving? Give my life for? Listen, no, 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 I know, I know, I know, but they're wrong, I know. But they need Jesus. What an opportunity it would be for us during complex times to respond with truth and love.